Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey breasties i just wanted to thank all of you so very much for listening to us these past few months we were so overwhelmed with gratitude to learn that we have listeners all across the globe including at least one in austria where fun fact is where i was born also ein ganz besonderes hallo an dich meine liebe österreicher that's just a little special shout out for you We could not have come this far without you, Breasties. Like a good bra, you've supported us through every episode, and I just wanted to let you know how you can help our baby podcast grow. We recently launched a Patreon where you can become a patron and get access to ad-free episodes as well as some bonuses we're still cooking up for you. We have $5, $10, and $20 per month levels. Every little bit helps, and you can sign up at our website at theverybreastpodcastever.com. If you're not in a position to donate right now, that's okay too. You can still help us by following us on Instagram, sharing our content, engaging with us, recommending guests to us, and most importantly, telling your breasties about the very breast podcast ever. That's my story, breasties. Back to the show. This is a show about breasts and the people who have them, from bras and sexuality to health and everyday life. This is the very breast podcast ever. Hey breasties, my name is Nadia Figueroa and I'm a bra designer. From me and our producer Alyssa McHugh, welcome to the very breast podcast ever. It's October, Breasties, the one month of the year where it seems like breasts are on everyone's mind. Why? October is National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We have three very special episodes coming up to honor this incredibly important topic. Before we jump in, I want to take a moment to dedicate this episode to my mother-in-law, Sonia Figueroa. Sonia is one of the strongest women I know who has been faced with one of the most difficult challenges imaginable. For the past few years, Sonia has been fighting her battle with breast cancer. There have been ups and downs in her journey and even some time when we were sure that she had beaten it. Sonia has been through mastectomies, reconstruction, surgery reversals, and years of difficult chemo and radiation. But in the last year, the cancer has started to attack the rest of her body. Through it all, though, she has remained strong and she has pushed forward. 
As you listen to this episode, and to all the stories we'll tell you this month, please take a moment to keep Sonia in your hearts and minds. To kick off October, I wanted to give you all a history of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and my research ended up taking me to some unexpected places. But before we go there, let's go even further back in history and talk about the history of breast cancer. Breast cancer has been known about since the beginning of modern humanity. Written records and illustrations of breast cancer go back as far as 3000 BC. And it's believed that they go back that far because the location and prominence of the breast allowed for easy identification of cancerous growths. In ancient Greece, people made votive offerings in the shape of a breast to the god of medicine, and Hippocrates even hypothesized on the stages of breast cancer in the early 400s BC. Lumpectomies were performed as early as the 1st century AD, albeit without anesthesia, so doctors had to be very quick and very accurate. And the way they practiced those surgeries actually had an effect on medical practice today. As we progressed into the Middle Ages, medical and surgical progress kind of stagnated in the West as early Christian philosophies favored faith healing over surgery. Meanwhile, though, Islamic scholars were reviving Greek studies at the time and combining them with current Arabic advances in medicine and pharmacology. In the 10th century, the Arab surgeon Albucasis was advocating things like cauterization for surgery and inventing several surgical instruments that, among other things, aided in the swift removal of breast tumors. Arab scholars were also using caustic paste to annihilate tumors and make them operable. That logic is actually similar to the purpose of chemo for breast cancer today. Although we aren't sure exactly when mastectomies started, it is known that they were regularly practiced on breast cancer victims as early as the Byzantine Empire. Fast forward ahead to 1882. The first radical mastectomy is performed by William Halstead. This guy needs his own episode, but for context, a radical mastectomy is a surgery in which the entirety of the breast tissue, the surrounding lymph nodes, and the pectoral muscles of the chest wall underneath are removed. Then, in the 1890s, the first x-ray was taken, and later Marie Curie discovers the radioactive elements in radium, and soon after, radium begins to be used in cancer treatment. Then, during World War II, American soldiers exposed to mustard gas were found to have damage to their bone marrow, which significantly reduced white blood cell counts. This led researchers to discover that nitrogen mustard could be used to halt the growth of rapidly dividing cells, like cancer cells. This marked the beginning of the use of cytotoxic agents, which would later become known as chemotherapy, as another treatment for cancer. In 1974... Betty Ford became the first lady when her husband was thrust into the presidency by Richard Nixon's resignation. The struggle of becoming first lady under such negative and disgraced conditions must have been difficult enough, but not long after she became first lady, her doctor found a lump in her breast, and just two days later, she was having surgery. Now, this was before the days that feel your boobies was part of the vernacular. There was no push for early detection, no pink ribbons, certainly no National Breast Cancer Awareness Month. The words breast and cancer were just not things you talked about openly. She went into surgery just two days after the lump was found, and in one go, her tissue was biopsied and she had a radical mastectomy. This was common in those days. Often, women who had found lumps in their breasts would enter surgery within days of finding it, not knowing if they would wake up with their breasts or not. 
At this point, the radical mastectomy had become the standard for cancer treatment and was performed on 90% of patients with breast cancer in the U.S. These days, radical mastectomies that include the chest wall muscles are only recommended in cases where those muscles are actually afflicted with cancer. But this one-and-done method with little to no discussion with the patient as far as treatment options was the norm when Betty was diagnosed. Since her cancer was caught so early, Betty's prognosis was actually pretty good. But part of what makes her story so unique is that many credit Betty with bringing breast cancer into the spotlight. Shortly after her surgery, there was a press conference confirming her good prognosis, and she even let reporters into her hospital room to photograph her. Before her case, obituaries of women who had died of breast cancer were often vague and listed them as dying from, quote, a prolonged disease or, quote, a woman's disease. After her public diagnosis and recovery, Betty Ford went on to become an advocate for breast cancer and survival through early detection and screening. Suddenly, newspapers were printing articles on how to give yourself a breast exam. And the number of women willing to perform those self-exams, go to a doctor to get examined, and talk about their experiences increased exponentially. So that brings us to Breast Cancer Awareness Month. It began in October of 1985, 10 years after Betty Ford's very public diagnosis and treatment, as a week-long event organized by the American Cancer Society and the pharmaceutical division of a company called Imperial Chemical Industries, which is now part of AstraZeneca. Hey, we know them, right? As a prominent breast cancer survivor and spokesperson for the American Cancer Society, Betty Ford helped kick off the event. I think it's safe to say that without Betty Ford's efforts, all of this awareness probably wouldn't have happened the way it did. And regardless of your political leanings, and if you know me in real life, you know that I pretty much never say stuff like that because my political leanings are a big part of my personality, I think what Betty Ford did was pretty cool. That's not to say that she was the only person who tried to bring breast cancer into public awareness, nor was she the first. In 1954, a woman named Therese Lasser was treated for a malignant breast lump with a radical mastectomy. She was outraged by the dismissive attitude of her surgeons after her surgery. She got no guidance on how to live her life afterwards. How was she supposed to handle her relationship with her husband? What was she supposed to tell her kids? How does she get a prosthesis? She had been treated and essentially ignored afterwards when she no longer had a medical need. She ended up founding an organization called Reach to Recovery. She faced open hostility from surgeons who banned her from visiting their patients, but nevertheless, she visited with hospitalized breast cancer patients to give them the social support and guidance she knew that they needed. Eventually, in 1969, despite the resistance it faced early on from the medical community, Reach to Recovery was so popular that it ended up being incorporated into the American Cancer Society and helped pave the road for the movement Betty Ford fueled. There's also Babette Roseman, an editor of Seventeen magazine who, in 1970, found a lump in her breast and was one of the first women known to have challenged the one-step procedure that Betty Ford experienced, wherein a radical mastectomy was performed all in one go after a malignant biopsy, without any real discussion with the patient. In her 1972 book, The Invisible Worm, she talks about her surgeon's response to her refusing the one-step procedure. He called her, quote, a very silly and stubborn woman and told her, quote, in three weeks, you may be dead. And then there's Shirley Temple Black, diagnosed with breast cancer in 1972. She also supported a woman's right to decide what was done to her body and the right to have a biopsy before treatment. In her own words, the doctor can make the incision, I'll make the decision. The goal of Breast Cancer Awareness Month early on was to educate women about breast cancer and early detection. 
These days, it is sometimes criticized for its commercialization and the drug company that founded its reliance on profits, but in my opinion, it keeps the words breast cancer on the public's lips and continues to stress the importance of early detection and funding for research. Keep at it, I say. If you've been listening to our little podcast from the beginning, you know that every time I interview a guest, I ask them a few spitfire questions about breasts. One of the questions I always ask is, what do you think is the hardest part of having breasts? The very first answer I ever got to that question, and the one that I can confidently say I hear the most often, is fear of breast cancer. It's my answer to that question, too. I always think about that episode of The Office where Michael Scott reminds Pam to get tested and calls her boobs ticking time bags. I mean, it's Michael Scott, so this is ridiculous. But it is something I think about every time I give myself a breast exam or get one from my doctor. Every single time I think, this is the one. This is when I'm going to find something. But what does that mean exactly? What are we looking for in those exams? Let's start with the basics. What is breast cancer? Actually, wait. Let's start even more basic than that. What exactly is cancer? I know it's bad, but what is it? At its most basic definition, cancer is uncontrolled cell growth. Our bodies are made of trillions of cells that are constantly multiplying, dividing, dying, and being replaced. When the cells get old or abnormal, they usually die. But in the case of cancer, that cell growth just keeps going, uncontrolled. There are tons of fail-safes in your cells that help prevent this from happening, but sometimes either as a result of environment or genetics or lifestyle choices or just plain bad luck, those fail-safes fail. And when this happens, those cancerous cells crowd our normal cells and prevent our bodies from functioning normally. This can manifest in many different ways depending on where the cancer is originating from. Cancer cells can also break away from the source and spread to other parts of the body through the bloodstream or lymph system. When those cells aren't caught and killed by the body, they can settle in a new place and start to grow there. This is called metastasis. When cancer is diagnosed, you may have heard people apply a stage to the cancer that they're talking about. Cancer is diagnosed in stages 1 to 4, with stage 1 meaning it hasn't metastasized or spread very much, and the higher stages meaning it has spread more. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in American women. Just for clarity, I mean people who were assigned female at birth and have breast tissue. This is how the statistics and studies are generally conducted, so that's the language I'm going to use. This year, 2021, it's estimated that about 30% of newly diagnosed cancers in American women will be breast cancer. Globally, breast cancer accounts for about 12% of all annual new cancer cases. A statistic I hear a lot is that one in eight women will develop breast cancer in their lifetime. Of course, anyone with breast tissue can develop breast cancer, so this does include men, I should mention. But compare that one in eight statistic to a man's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, which is about one in 833. Nothing to sneeze at, but other than age, the other main risk factor in developing breast cancer is sex, being female. In our next few episodes, we are going to talk to you more about the human side of cancer, what it's like to be diagnosed, surviving it, treatment options. Breast cancer treatment has continued to evolve since the Byzantine Empire and the days of Betty Ford's diagnosis. For instance, another type of mastectomy known as a simple mastectomy, which preserves all the pectoral muscles, has been developed. And one study in the 1970s found that a lumpectomy followed by radiation can sometimes be as effective as a full mastectomy. We'll talk more about this in future episodes, but one thing I can't stress enough is that it's different for everybody and early detection is key. 
Also, and this is important, I just have a little podcast and I did some research on the big old internet. So nothing I'm telling you should be considered a substitute for medical advice. I am not a doctor. But you know what? Our guest for this week's episode is a doctor. When I first asked her to be part of our podcast, it didn't really occur to me how much we would end up talking about breast cancer. I figured we'd talk about breast health, anatomy, science stuff. But what I learned is that it's one of the primary concerns not only of the doctors who examine our breasts, but of the people whose breasts are getting examined. I am incredibly excited to introduce you to a gynecologist who generously donated her time to us to tell us all about the ins and outs of breasts. What are we looking for when we do a breast exam? What does a lump feel like? What happens to our breasts as we age? And what's up with nipple hair? Breasties, please welcome Dr. Monica Simmons to the very breast podcast ever. I am Dr. Monica Simmons. I I own my own practice here in the city. It's called Every Woman Wellness. Um, we are currently located, um, I guess this would still be considered Midtown. I have been a gynecologist now for oof, too long. So let's say 24 years officially. That's when I graduated medical school. And um, I've been out of training, meaning residency training for, for OBGYN for 20 years. So I've been in practice for a total of 20 years to be exact. And I also have a practice uptown. I'm affiliated with the Bronx Lebanon Hospital, which is which has now been renamed to Bronx Care Hospital. So I work there part-time and then I have my own practice here in the city. Uh, that's amazing. So when I first mentioned this to my husband that I was gonna interview a gynecologist for a show, he said to me, isn't that the wrong body part? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So um, do you get that misconception a lot that you only interact with vaginas? Um, it depends. Like it depends on the, on the patient population. So like my uptown patients. So when I answer a lot of these questions, which I'm expecting there to be, um, there's a, usually a separation. So I separate my uptown patients from my downtown patients just because the culture is different the mentality is different. And so I have to address concerns based on, you know, each, each person's culture. So when you hear me say downtown, I mean the ones here in, in Midtown. My uptown would be the ones in the Bronx, who I see in the Bronx. So oddly enough, I get more questions about, oh, can you check my breasts as if it's not gonna be part of the exam with my downtown patients. And that's mainly because a lot of my downtown patients tend to be a lot younger. And so I don't think that they're as exposed as my uptown patients who are a little bit older and they have, you know, they're a little more mature. So they expect that the one time a year that they're gonna have a breast exam will be when they see their gynecologist because internal medicine generally, and I hope nobody takes this the wrong way, they tend not to do a breast exam. Okay. Um, generally what they'll do is they'll send the patient for a mammogram, but not necessarily touch their breasts. We touch the breasts. And if they already do not have an appointment for a mammogram, let's say that they're older in that, that age range, we will go ahead and we will send them for their screening mammograms. But also if they have a breast issue, 
a lot of them will see us, we will palpate it or we'll investigate it, and then we end up sending the majority of them to the breast surgeon if they need to go down that route. So that's usually how it works. So how much of your daily job deals with breasts? Oh, it's all day. Like every patient who has a breast, I must touch it and I have to do an exam. So it, it's, 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 part of, it's part of the GYN exam. So that's why I, I brought up the fact that when you go to an internist or general medical doctor, they don't necessarily, and, and again, this does not mean all of them, a lot of them do not do a breast exam, just because, you know, sometimes it's their comfort level. Um, sometimes, you know, they just would rather just send the patient to have some imaging studies done. Whereas on the GYN side, because we take care of women, we, we try and examine them from head to toe. So I usually start with a neck exam and then I work myself down to the vagina. So it's not just a vaginal exam or an abdominal exam. It, you know, we really have to check your breasts and address any concerns. So can you walk me through uh, what a breast exam is exactly like your annual breast exam? What are you looking for and, and what's your process? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me, can I show you? I was going to be like, oh, this is going to be difficult, but okay. No, no problem. <laughs> um, okay. So usually... I can't speak for everyone, but my, my usual exam starts with the neck and I usually, you know, just have the person um, swallow because I want to check for their thyroid gland, make sure that that's not enlarged. Then I move, then I move down to the breast. I want to see that they're both equal. And in our, in our, in our vernacular, we call it symmetrical. So you want them to be somewhat symmetrical, even though one side of every person's body is a little bit longer or shorter than the other side. That's normal. Um, and so you just want to see if the shape is, is the same on both and you want to see if there's any masses. So that's, that's where the palpation comes in. So you want to just press on the breast and you start all the way on the outer part. And a lot of women don't understand that, that they have breast tissue almost up to their clavicle or your, or, or your, um, your bone. Okay. So you have to start pretty high. And then we just work in like in a circular fashion because it just works out easier for us because then you don't, you try not to miss anything. So you do it in a, in a circular order, almost like, remember that game, you guys are too young, but remember that <laughs> game as a kid, we call it the big top, you know, you press on and then it like swivels like this and it's like a triangle. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> Same thing. So you want to have your exam like that until you get to the nipple. To the areola and the nipple. Once you get to the areola, you want to make sure that that looks fine. You want to check and see if the nipples are inverted or if you know both are are are, are inverted or if the external. If they're not, if everything looks normal, fine. If one is inverted and the other one is not, then you have to ask ask the patient. Listen, you know, does the other one come out? And if it does, then fine. You will, you know, you can try and actually, you know, get the nipple to come out because you need to evaluate it. If both of them are inverted, and that's how it's been for the person's, you know, up to their adult life or when you're seeing them, then that's fine too. Um, but then, yes, you just want to warn them that chances are once they once they conceive and they have a child, a lot of times then the the nipples will evert. Okay, but then once you've done that, then you want to turn your attention to the armpit, also known as the axilla to us, because there's a lot of what we call um, breast tissue or accessory breast tissue, which goes all the way out to your armpit. And so a lot of times that gets missed and you can have masses there. And then we just really palpate into your, um, your armpit to see if there's any lymph node, which is, which is enlarged, if it's tender, 
tender, meaning if it's like swollen and it causes a little bit of pain, and that's it. And that's usually the end of the exam. After we have squeezed the nipple, make sure that the nipple is not does not have any discharge. There's no like um, there's no abnormal green color discharge or even white discharge. Maybe abnormal for someone who is not breastfeeding. We check that, and then that's it. And then we turn our attention to the abdomen, to the belly. Is it is it common? Do you see like is inverted nipples? Is that like a really common thing? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, it's very common. It's also very common to have one which is, one which is not. It's common to have inverted nipples when you're younger. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a normal variant. Like you'll have people who have decided to evert their nipples so that you can actually have surgery to do that, to keep it out. Um, or you can, you know, if, if, if you're able to extract it yourself, sure, then you just do that. But some people choose to go ahead and, and invert it. You know, let's say you want to wear a nice dress. Nowadays, now they have the nice pasties. But back in my day, when I was much younger, they didn't have all these lovely things. So that's what a lot of women did. You just invert it and then you put like a piece of tape or a Band-Aid and you go about your day. You mentioned also um, that you're checking for symmetry. So I know me personally, I don't have symmetrical boobs. What is uh, some risks of it being asymmetrical? What are you looking for it exactly? Well, specifically when we check it as such, if it, if there's a significant difference, we want to we want to palpate or or feel deeper to make sure that it's not a mass or some type of some type of growth which is causing it to be so 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 much larger than the other, right? So usually the symmetry will be in the contour. So if both of them look like um, grapefruits right? But one is just more like an orange size and the other one is more like a grapefruit size, but it, 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 it has a perfect contour of a circle, then it's less likely that there's a mass which is, which is changing the shape of it. Whereas if you have somebody who has cancer, yeah, one will look almost like, like a sun-dried tomato, almost like that. Like the skin will get, you know, like it just pulls out from the skin so it's not that beautiful you know circular look it has more of a something is pulling at it something is kind of like dehydrating fruit type of look something is doing that meanwhile the other one will look you know like that perfect circle so that's what that's what we're trying to ascertain is it something is it a growth is it a growth that could be cancerous is it a growth that is something which is benign, meaning that it's not cancerous. So, so in that case, you have something which is called a fibroadenoma. And a fibroadenoma is kind of equivalent to fibroids, which a lot of women have in their uterus. So that too can cause a little bit of a distortion, but it tends to tend to keep the same circular fashion. Whereas, you know, cancer tends to kind of grab at, at anything which is in its path. So um, in recent episodes, I've actually urged our listeners to do a monthly self-breast exam. But when I was doing my research for this episode, I found that there's a lot of people who are saying that that's not really the accepted advice anymore. What are your thoughts on that? The American Cancer Society no longer recommends breast self-exams in average risk women because of a risk of false positives and, quote, a lack of evidence of benefit. Instead, they recommend we practice the vague, quote, breast self-awareness to detect changes instead of a regular repetitive self-exam to detect cancer. I would argue that a monthly exam at the same time of the month would make you pretty self-aware of your breasts, wouldn't it?
Honestly, who at the ACS came up with this change in policy? I mean, I'm just... You know what? Let's save this for a future episode and hear what Dr. Simmons has to say. It it depends on if someone is doing the monthly breast self-exam instead of seeing their doctor once a year to, to have that check versus the person doing it just so that they can become familiar with their breasts. So how I feel about it is this. I think that the more in touch women are with their bodies, period, makes them better able to notice something or recognize something well before they come to see us. Because you guys only come to see us once a year. I mean, I have some patients who like to come all the time just for, you know, small things. And that's fine. But most people, you know, they don't want to see their gynecologist. Like, we're the most hated um, specialty that there is. I mean, nobody wants to be quote unquote, you know, as you guys will say, violated, even once a year. It's not, it's not anything which is considered pleasant, right? So the monthly breast exam is meant for everyone, every female, so that one, you start to notice changes in your breasts based on where you are in your cycle, okay? You also may be the type of person who will notice the changes in your breasts based on your diet. Also, if you know what your breast tissue feels like, when you feel something different, you will come to us a lot faster and a lot of breast masses, um, whether it's cancer or like I said, something benign like a fibroadenoma is usually picked up a lot faster from women who do monthly breast self-exams as opposed to women who never touch their breasts and, and you know they kind of wait for their exam and sometimes they do their their mammals and sometimes they don't so my belief is the more that you that you understand how your body feels and looks and feels the better off that you can recognize something which is not normal so that you can come and see us so what kind of things should we look out for when we're doing our own breast exams what does a lump feel like well, it depends on the lump. So some lumps, this is how they describe to us in medical school. Um, you know, they give you they give you a simulator. <laughs> Again, in medical school, they give you like a simulated breast and they'll have, you know, different masses in the same breast and then you have to identify what you think it is, right? So they describe one of them as be- feeling like a marble. So the marble is like kind of smooth on the outside and it kind of moves if you move it around. It tends not to cause you pain. It's it's more just like something that you can feel under the skin and, and within the tract of, of the breast. Those tend to be benign. Those tend to be things like a fibroadenoma. Then you have things which, like I said, you can, you can just look at your breast and see that something is pulling from the skin. And that usually is, a, is not the best sign because most of the time, those masses or those um, those growths tend to be more serious and they may be something which is cancerous because how cancer grows, it's not, you know, it's not very elegant. It just kind of picks up, you know, blood supply from wherever and then it just starts pulling at anything which is in, in the way so that it can get blood supply. So the breast will start to look as if they call it this, de orange which means you know like a like an orange peel i don't think of it really that way because it actually looks more like like a dehydrated fruit you know you know how you get like that wiry it looks mm-hmm. more like that the sun-dried tomato 
Yes, I call it some joy <laughs> because some joy tomatoes look good, but you know they taste good, <laughs> but they don't look so good. Um, but with that, what ends up happening is when you try and, and feel it or palpate it, it's fixed. So you can't move it around like the marble. It's not going to feel nice and smooth. It's going to feel almost like it's stuck to the skin or stuck to wherever it is underneath, and you can't shake it around and move it up and down. And so that would be more of something a little more concerning, possibly cancer. Mm-hmm. And you have cysts. Cysts tend to come and go just like they do on the ovary, um, just like they do in other areas of the body. So cysts will feel a little more tender. And when I say tender, I mean, you know, a little more discomfort. So when you touch it, it may feel, you know, almost like inflammation. Okay. And with that, you get somewhat of a similar feeling like the marble, but it's softer. You can tell it that there's liquid in there, right? They hurt. Cysts tend to hurt because, because they tend to be formed because of something, as you guys would say, hormonally active tissue. So like if someone drinks a lot of caffeine, like this is my big thing. I always tell patients to have fibrocystic breast, which generally most women will have that for the rest of their lives, just because when you have glands in your body, they react to different hormones. So if you like to drink coffee, which has caffeine or a chocolate like me, who, you know, has a lot of sugar, things like that, that naturally causes inflammation in your body. So it's going to do the same thing with the breast tissue and how the breast tissue responds because it's a duct and it's supposed to produce um, liquid, it will produce a cyst. And so said cyst will feel, you know, like a little tender and you'll be like, oh my God, this hurts a little bit or whatever, which is why, again, I say that the breast exam at home is so important because you can then gauge by, okay, oh, it's soon, it's soon to be my period or it's soon to be my menses. So it could just be because of that. So when I recommend the monthly breast self-exam for my patients, I tell them all the time to do it one week after your period has ended or two weeks after it has started. So it's you're the middle of your cycle. And when you're in the middle of your cycle, all things being equal, your breast should not hurt right? Because you don't have all of this, this change in hormones of being on your period and then, and then, you know, getting close to it. So that's the optimal time to do it. And so if you still have cysts then, then you know, okay, between now and your next cycle, you just want to change your diet and then see if you still get it the next month. And if you don't get it the next month after, after changing your diet, then you know exactly how to work it. Okay. So let's talk about mammograms real quick. <laughs> okay. um, how do those work? And is all that smushing necessary? Well, I don't know. Well, you're not of, of that age, Nadia, so I won't. But um, with my older patients, I always tell them, you know, listen, it's the one time a year you got to do this stuff, right? And then, you know, I usually get pushed back. Ah, oh, but it's so painful. It's this, it's that. And then, you know, that's when I usually pull in my, my own story. And I tell them, listen, I had my first mammogram, unfortunately, at age 28, because I felt I felt something. I went in and I was like, you gotta be kidding me. It's like, the, it's a guillotine, right? It really does look like a guillotine. You go in and basically these two edges come and it just smashes your breast. Now, your listeners cannot see that I have very little breasts. So I'm going to try and be as nice as possible when I, when I um, describe this. When you go in, and, and the top and the bottom of the guillotine come down on your breast, right? They have to be able to see as much of your chest wall 
as possible. So the part that is painful is not just the squeezing. It's the fact that first they squeeze it in there, right? They bring the guillotine together, so to speak. And then um, the lovely technician will come and adjust whatever breast tissue is in there because they have to get as much as possible. So you end up having to push your that side of your chest all the way up against this machine. Then you got to hold your breath because of course, you know, your chest wall is about to come out. And then and then the technician has to walk over, press the button, <laughs> check the film, make sure that they got everything, and then it releases. Then then the guillotine releases. And it's not fun. And, and, and I always say that, you know, it, it must have been, or it still is, it, it must have been one of those devices which was invented by men, clearly, <laughs> Because as a female, we would never think to do that. The mammogram was, in fact, invented by a man. In 1956, a medical student named Robert Egan was tasked with figuring out a way to get proper x-ray imaging of breast tissue. He had to not only find the perfect x-ray settings that were high enough to penetrate soft breast tissue, but lower than what was used to penetrate bone, he also had to figure out the mechanics of getting that imagery. He tried countless techniques, including floating the breasts in liquid. Once he figured out his compression method, at first he was mocked by the medical community and referred to sometimes as the titty man. But eventually he traveled across the country teaching the quote, Egan technique, and today he's known as one of the founders of modern mammography. Now, mind you, I have no boobs, but my larger chest people, they go and they're like, oh my God, it's really bad. And I'm like, can you imagine me? Like there's nothing, there's <laughs> nothing to put in there. And the first time I did this at 28 years old, I was like, oh, this is crazy. By the time I turned 40, they better have changed this. So I gave them 12 years to change it. They didn't. So Do what you I think they're working on anything to... Yeah. to- no. No, no, no. That was I, I asked Nadia to throw that question in because I was yeah, like, please, yeah. I'm getting close to 40. So I'm like let me, let me just tell you, um, my sister is the one who forced me to go back and do it. Okay. Because I turned 40 and I was like, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm gonna wait because guess what? I think my breasts are fine. And I had this whole denial thing going on. And then she said, No, you're gonna go you're going to go. So I compromised. I did it at 41. And I went in there and I was like, okay, listen here, you people. It just so happens that, you know, it's a place that I send all my patients anyway. So they know me. So I said, yeah, I'm not going to pull the I'm Dr. Simmons card, but you better run fast and press that button because I'm not going to hold my breath for that long. Because this is ridiculous. And so every year now that I go, they're really fast. They're like, oh, nice to meet you here. They press the button. I'm like, oh, my God, my God. <laughs> does it take Does it take like 30 seconds or something, but it feels like five minutes? It's not even 30 seconds it takes. It's, oh, yeah. it, it's, it's maybe 10 seconds. But when your chest wall, like I said, is coming out and you have to hold your breath and your shoulder is up against it and then they move you around like, ah, uh, it's just, yeah, it's not pleasant. But as I tell my patients, it's once a year. And if that means that that once a year you go so that you can have peace of mind, you can make sure that you don't have cancer, we hope then just do it. It's just like coming to see me. I know you can't stand seeing me, but <laughs> it's part of the trade-off. You come once a year, I try and make it as painless as possible, but that's impossible. And woof, you go off and the next 364 days, do what you want. 
and then you just come back for that and the same thing with the mammogram. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things we just have to do, unfortunately. So I have, um, I have breast cancer in my immediate family. So I've, I've had to go through the mammogram thing. Um, mm -hmm. and I'm fortunate because at least I, I have enough to work with that I can just place it on there. I don't okay, need stop to. bragging. Stop bragging. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I've heard a lot about genetic testing mm -hmm. and, um, some of our listeners might be surprised to know that there's actually a whole bunch of new genes now that they're discovering that contribute to your risk of developing breast cancer. Sure. Um, can you tell me a little more about that? I know about the BRCA1 and BRCA2, but do you know of any others that, that are, okay. are being discovered? Okay. So, so basically when they talk about other genes, they're really what, what we call alleles. So genes are made up of, let's just call them smaller genes, right? And the smaller genes are alleles. So they make up the portion of you know the whole genetic makeup and what we do is we tr we continually try and discover the areas on the gene which like i said are, are made up of alleles so an allele will be one space one portion of it let's say you know one third of a third on the whole gene and so as we keep discovering different cancers in different people, when we see that it keeps repeating in that same area, that one area, we'll then name that allele to be tested. But the BRCA, so that was called breast cancer gene one, breast cancer gene two. Um, the initial naming of it was mainly because we can identify the main gene. So the whole thing. Now, with there being so much more technology and so much more research being done, now we can actually locate it to a specific part. And when we see that it's repeated, then we say, oh, wow, we can test. This is associated with, let's say, this other type of disease, or this, this we see a lot more often in this um, population, this, this patient population. And so then we'll be able to offer more testing for people and get a little more specific. So it's not just a broad, okay, the whole gene. And if, you know, that gene comes back positive, then we say, okay, yes, you have the breast cancer gene. Now we can, we can locate it to a specific portion and say, okay, while your BRCA1 or 2 may be positive, specifically this allele or this portion of that gene is associated with, let's say, pancreatic cancer or something else like that. And so now we're finding that we can be a lot more specific with it and we can test for other um, risk factors or other genes which are associated with these other cancers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. What are your thoughts on, on people who test positive for these, these types of genes, but haven't been diagnosed with cancer yet, who decide to get mastectomies? I mean, I think it's a personal decision. You know, I'm always very candid with my patients. I'm candid with you. I'm candid with everyone. Um, I have always said that if, God forbid, you know, they found cancer in my poor little boob, because of course, from 28 to 40, I was like, I'm not doing it. If it's cancer or whatever, um, I'm just going to have to deal with it. But in my mind, again, I, I think to myself, the breast is it's a functional organ. I mean, sure, we look cute in these in our little tops and a push-up bra, right? You know, we look sexy, but it's a functional organ, right? So... For me, decision-making of that is how do I want my life to be led? Do I want to worry every time I feel something? Do I want to worry about, um, you know, it, you know, it coming and, and, and it not being picked up early enough because mammograms don't necessarily pick up things which are one-tenth of a size. It takes about 10 years before we actually see a mass on mammogram. So we know that the person has that mass or that breast cancer that the one cell has been there at least for 10 years okay so in my mind at least speaking for myself i said listen if it comes out that you know they have to biopsy if there's cancer take them both off give me implants and i'll still look cute okay but i have peace of mind i can go to bed at night and i can say you know what they took out all the breast tissue i will do whatever follow-ups i have to do but i will just go ahead and, and and take the breast tissue out because i don't need it right but there are some women, many women and men as well, who are attached to their breasts. And that's okay, right? Like I said, it's a personal decision. Um, we will still do certain workups for them. So we usually start screening a lot earlier for them. But as I said, in that counseling of my patients, I let them know that, yeah, if, if you're waiting for us to pick up something specific via mammogram, you probably have that cancer for years, meaning that the cell starts to divide. And by the time it gets to the size that we can see something, it's usually somewhere between seven to 10 years that it has been there. So just imagine if you already know that you have the propensity to that happening. And now that we're able to offer you a mastectomy, um, you know, if you want it, it if you want to hold on to your breasts for a while because some women make that decision because they would like to breastfeed you know there's there's so many other things which come into their decision making that's fine too you just have to understand you know whatever risks are put on the table for you what other things other than our genes could possibly put us at risk for for breast cancer well 
age. Age is the biggest is the biggest risk factor. So, um, when when somebody has the gene, basically it just means that we're a lot more. And, and I hate to use this word diligent, but we intervene a lot earlier in terms of starting to get screening and testing. Um, and a lot of these, you know, the younger people who have the gene, you know, we can get authorization to do MRIs. MRIs, obviously, it detects a mass a lot faster. But MRIs also are very expensive. So it's not like, okay, yeah, go for an MRI every year. Yeah, that's a thousand dollars drops every time. And that's, you know, the insurance companies will go bankrupt. So the mammogram is a lot cheaper, obviously. However, it's not as specific because when you're young, your, your breasts are very dense. And so it's not the best test, but it's one of the tools we have to try and detect it earlier rather than later. It's just all dependent on the person. I, 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 can't, I can't stress that enough because some people are very, very, very attached to their breasts. And then you have on the flip side of it, some people are very, very anxious about anything which may cause death or suffering. Mm -hmm. Do so, you see culture? Do you see the culture of the patient ever? Like, is that a big impact that changes sort of like usually where they're coming from with those decisions? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And, and, and yeah, people bring a lot of stuff to the table, you know, the cultural norms, what the expectations are, um, you know, they're worried about functionality. They're worried about, um, you know, image. It, it, it's a lot. Like I said, we as a society, and this goes across the world, are very um, breast focused. <laughs> <I gotta laughs> say. Definitely breast focused. Um, but again, it doesn't make it anything which is a negative. It's just, you know, you have to take all that into account when you're counseling a patient. And that's part of my job is to is to sit down and give the whole entire picture, as grim as it may be, or as or as positive as it may be, I have to be real, I have to tell you the truth, so that then you can then fit it into whatever your culture and make up the proper decision for you. Yeah, of course. So um, just shifting away from from breast cancer a little bit, I know that you mentioned breast density changes as we age. And of course, our breasts sag, everyone knows that. But how much do our breasts actually change as we age? And, and what other kind of health issues do we need to look out for? Okay, so the mammogram was created, as I said, by a man. But anyway, <laughs> the mammogram was created. Um, the reason why 50 was used initially as the um, the age to start screening because as women age the density or the fibrousness of your breast become looser okay so how breast tissue is made up it's made up of glands which almost look like um um let's say like corn, <laughs> corn on the cob like that it kind of looks like that or like berries like a like a cherry or you know like those small mm -hmm. little berries or whatever and they're like all all together right grapes and then you have like wiry things in between and the wiry things which are in between that that is basically like ligaments right so it kind of holds everything up and it goes all throughout of your breast all the way to the areola and to the nipple because 
when you are breastfeeding, that is what contracts onto those same glands that I said look like grapes or whatever you want to call them. You know, you can use your own imagery. Um, and then it releases the, the, the milk through the nipple, okay? As we age or as you've had children or as you have been, you know, um, breastfeeding or lactating, those ligaments, just like anywhere else in the body, start to become looser, okay? And so at 50, we arbitrarily chose 50 because at that age, a large amount of women have gone through menopause. And we know that the glands react to hormones. They react to estrogen, okay? So once estrogen starts to go down, the glands themselves start to retrieve, so to speak, or they shrivel up again, like in the sun, just like the sun-dried tomato, same thing. Um, it starts to do that, but then at the same time, these ligaments cannot support that because the ligaments kind of stay taut with, with the stuff on the vine, so to speak. So that starts to also retreat or mm -hmm. get loose, and that's when you get the breast which will start to sag. okay? It's just a matter of, you know, something's not holding up, you know, the vine is not holding up your grape. Or the you know the 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 cob is not is not holding up the corn anymore you know that type of that type of thing and that's why you get the drooping now the density of your breasts is measured by the amount of that ligament which is going mm -hmm. through so the more that you have those ligaments and the tighter bound these glands are the harder it is for the guillotine to see through it. So that's where you get the, the very dense breast, which now as, as women are taking better care of themselves, they're having more of the dense breast later in life. Oh. Okay? Because menopause is shifting. It's not, it's not as early as our foremothers. Okay. Now a woman at 50 is still menstruating and she may menstruate until 55. So when you go in for the mammogram, a lot of times, you know, the first time they say, oh, you know, very, very fibro-dense breast. Okay, well, great for the patient, right? Because that means that, you know, she still has some, some lift, but it's, it's not good for the, for the, um, the radiologist who's taking a look at this because they can't see through all that dense tissue, through those mm -hmm. ligaments, which, are, which are still doing its job. And so they're not as able to pinpoint if there's a mask behind it because it's kind of like you know trying to do a play behind the curtain and everyone's sitting there in the audience and they're like wow we can hear it but we can't see what's <laughs> happening on stage just just like that so uh -huh. you know you can you can infer that it's a comedy and and a lady is talking to a male and they're talking about, you know you, you can infer the plot but you can't see it yeah you know, it's, yeah it's, it's very similar so then usually what happens is then the radiologist will recommend getting a breast ultrasound or a sonogram of the breast because with that, it basically will, will take a look at the tissue through the scope of, you know, we use darkness and light, right? Mm -hmm. And you're able to see the ligaments going through and then you can see the glands through. So that's why we tend to combine it for women who are, you know, either getting their mammogram early, early as in 35, um, but nowadays, since our guidelines call for the initial mammogram starting at 40, if there's no other, no other family history, a lot of times we have to send people for both. Yeah. Because we expect it to be a lot more dense than someone who's 50 and a lot 
and, and a lot less dense than I'm saying, I'm sorry, a lot more dense than someone who's 60. But age is your biggest risk factor. So if we live long enough, which we as women will, um, because of course we're the superior sex, but we also live about three to seven years longer than, than the average male. Mm-hmm. Um, your biggest risk factor for breast cancer is age. So if you live to 100, you probably would have gotten breast cancer. One in eight women will get breast cancer. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, that, I didn't realize it's that it was high, but, it, but age is the biggest risk factor. Um, that's, that's incredible. And thank you for that analogy, because that actually really, really makes it clear. And I think that I'm going to call mammograms the guillotine from now on. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell them I told you, though, but just know that that's how it looks. When you have your mammogram, you'll see. You'll be like, oh, my God, please. Horrible. <laughs> Um, so I know, I know your time is precious, but we did, um, crowdsource some questions for you. I just wanted to shoot them off to you. So, um, we got some funny ones too. So, um, some of our listeners, one of the questions that I got most often is, is wearing a bra good or bad for you or neither? Good or bad for you in what way? But I guess you don't know because it's just that. Okay. So I will answer that two parts. As usual, you know, I always throw in my my personal experience because that's, you know, part of the joy of my job is doing experiments on myself and then imparting it on you guys. And I'm like, okay, yeah, this is what works, whatever. So I like to work out a lot, as you know. So um, I wear sports bras all the time. I don't, I I can't tell you the last time I wore a regular bra. I can't tell you with the underwiring because I stopped doing that <laughs> years ago because it just hurts. Da, da, da. Okay, fine. Um, and during COVID, I was working out at home. Um, and when I work out at home, there's no need for me to put on a sports bra. I'm in my house. So I do a lot of aerobics, jumping up and down or whatever. And not that I really noticed that that they have sagged. So I'm glad about that. But I do a lot of, you know, chest wall stuff. Um, but it does hurt a lot more because they're a lot, like they're moving a lot. So if you're the type of person who has, obviously most people have more than me, you know, you should wear some type of support to it because when, when those ligaments, like I said, they sag, just the natural gravity is going to pull it down. But then when you're doing, you know, any activity which involves, you know, let's say jumping up and down or walking, anything which, which there's an impact, it's going to pull on it even more. So ideally, Yes, wear something to kind of, you know, suspend it if that's an issue. But if you want to go, you know, braless because you have a cute dress and you want to show them, knock yourself out. Like it's your choice to do whatever you like. Um, what's up with nipple hair? That's normal too. So that, <laughs> I actually learned that. Oddly enough, I learned that um, before medical school. And I remember that there was somebody had commented on one of these like, radio shows I was listening to and the woman was in her 40s and she said yeah you know once I turned 40 I got nipple hair and I like <laughs> all I did was just like you know file it in the back of my brain because at that point I didn't realize it was going to go to medical school anyway Trey. so anyway so I finally it and I was like okay I have to look out for that I have to look out for this that okay so then I started medical school I decided I'm going to do OBGYN and then I said you know as with any anything else I say to myself you're going to figure this out and see if what she said is true because again it's just filed there for like <laughs> years and then I started you know seeing my patients and I'm like oh, yeah late 30s early 40s yeah and it's just 
you just start to find here in places of the female that you're just like, <laughs> darn it. When you're a teenager, it's not. Like if you're, you're a teenager in your early 20s, you're like, oh, life is easy. Once you like get late 20s and 30s, it's a whole other ballgame. And I hear it all uh-huh. the time. And it's not necessarily that it's something hormonal because people really think it is. It's just what happens with the hair follicle as we get older, you turn from what's called um, lanuga hair, which is more of that like fine baby type hair, which is so, which we love so much. I love it. It's like nice and smooth (laughs) and all you have to just like brush it down. It's nice. And then you have what's called terminal hair start to grow in that same follicle or next to it. And that's when you get dark, coarser hairs, especially if either you pluck it or you shave it. What happens is that the hair follicle then adjusts and it becomes a little more coarse. So that's what happens with the nipple um, because at first, the nipple itself, it's not quote unquote developed. So in a young child, you're not going to see any of the, any of the pores, so to speak, or, you know, the outlets where a child is going to latch on, right? But as you get older, you start getting your period, right? Your hormones are starting to do its job. And usually somewhere in the mid-20s or so, that's when you start to see the dots on your areola. Okay, because the nipple itself actually comes out. It's actually the, the, the sucky por- portion of it. But mm-hmm. the areola is the part that really makes the milk. So that's why you see like little white dots there. That's basically a duct, which if you were breastfeeding, milk would come out of there. So next month, we're going to talk to a lactation consultant and go all the way into breast anatomy and breastfeeding. Stay tuned. So that area, if it's, if it's amenable to having... Um, a hair follicle, which it doubles as that, then you start to get, unfortunately, nipple hair. People call it nipple hair. I just call it breast hair because you get it all around the areola. And it's just, it's just because the rest of your body also has hair. It's just some people make more of the lanuga hair, which is the Mm -hmm. baby type hair. And then you just get a few of these. Yeah. Those long black. (laughs) Yeah. So just pluck them. Don't shave it. Just pluck them and you know, what about what about laser electrolysis? I mean, you can do that too. But I mean, is, is it that serious? Like, there's some people who really get it badly, and I tell them, yes, go ahead and do that. If you do, go ahead. You yeah, but but laser, but does laser? Because there's always those rumors that laser gives you cancer or could give you cancer. Is that sort of just like one of those like myths that, yeah. or like we don't know enough, but it could. But you know, so could Coca-Cola. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, because you're too close to the skin surface for it to really cause you um, cancer. It's not going to go. It, oh. Lasers which are on the market, they react to the hair follicle, <laughs> so the color of the hair is is what then directs the beam of light to then kill the huh. follicle okay so it doesn't go deep enough so 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 like if you're getting laser like to your chest it's not like it's going to go to your heart no it's just acting specifically at the hair follicle yeah, so literally we're, just we're before this, this <laughs> literally just before this appointment i was at a laser hair and i was hey. like i gotta remember to ask oh <laughs> yeah no you can you can totally do it there it, yeah i mean it'll probably hurt like hell because you have a lot of nerve endings there but if, if it's only a few years, yeah, do it. And the younger that you do laser, the better, because then hopefully you'll have the, the decrease hair growth. So when you get to be 40, you're not like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. I got to pluck every day. So it won't be that issue. So I got this question a lot. Mm-hmm. What are those shooting pains we get in our breasts? What, what could that mean? The shooting pains are usually has nothing to do with the breast. It has to do with your chest wall and what you're doing at the time. 
a lot of people think it's that, but it's usually not. It's because the breast is, you know, I, I'm not going to call it a dumb organ because I call the uterus a dumb organ. Um, <laughs> it's smart because it does its job, but you shouldn't technically have muscular pain in your breast. The chest wall behind it or your pectoralis muscle is where you'll get that pain. So like if somebody, you know, the, the first question I ask people when they come in, oh my God, I have so much pain. Before I examine them, I ask them, which shoulder do you wear your bag? Right? If you wear your bag mostly on one oh. side, what happens is it's going to pull at that muscle and you'll have more pain on that side. So it just depends. So for huh. a while, I used to tell people, just get a backpack. But then backpacks kind of were in style and they went out of style. <laughs> now people are with the crossbody. So it's back to the like, <laughs> switch it around. You know, like you have to really switch around your purses because it, it also will change your alignment in terms of your neck, your shoulders, mm-hmm. and how you walk your spine. So you'll start to feel it. Women will start to feel it more so on whatever side that, that is being pulled down. You may feel it there because that muscle has to do more work to hold that weight. So that's the sharp pain. So I usually tell them just take huh. Motrin. If Motrin makes it go away, then it, 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 it's the muscle. It has nothing to do with the breath. Interesting. I got that question a lot. So I think it's something that, that a lot of women just assume it's something with their boobs. Yeah, most people do. But no, if it's like a shooting pain and it feels almost like a throbbing behind there, it's usually the muscle and not and not the breast itself. But I usually still send send people for the breast on just so that, you know, they have peace of mind. Why do some women's boobs get bigger when they gain weight and why do some not? Everybody's boobs get bigger when they when they gain weight. Everybody, no matter what they tell you. because again it's fatty tissue like most of your breast is fat the glands if you're breastfeeding there's milk in there so they're rock hard and they're heavy um so naturally if you gain weight yeah you'll get you know some people go up a little higher on their breast size if you're working out and i'm uh, the biggest testament to this like when i am doing a lot of chest flies and stuff oh it's great but I get, I get the, the, um, the increase in size more so all the way out by the armpit because mm-hmm. we're working the muscle underneath. So we can't just spot there. Um, women who are, let's say going on this, you know, a diet and let's say they're, you know, they're generally obese or they're larger and you lose 10 pounds. Yeah. The fat has to come from someplace. And so the body doesn't discriminate. It'll take it from the breast very easily. And then, yeah, your cup size may go down or the circumference of the, of your bra will also go down mm-hmm. if it's, it's the whole picture. So yeah, it happens whether you gain or whether you lose. Amazing. Um, (laughs) so the last, the last listener question I have for you is how did you end up deciding to become a gynecologist? Oh my God. I hate that question. question. Um, my students always ask me because, um, because I do a lot of teaching at the hospital. So I tried to, to, you know, when I first got into this, I tried to doctor it up and make it sound nice, but there's no way to make it sound nice. So, um, so I, I just, I just get very truthful, which is I, the reason why I don't like the question is because it's not anything which is going to inspire people. And I say that to say, because medical school was not on my to-do list. You know, that you, you know, people want to hear like an inspiring, oh my God, you always wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> I was not that person. I have always been this type of person who just kind of goes 
with a certain instinct and not even my own instinct. I just blow with however the wind is going and where I land, I make it work for me because I figure that wherever it is I land, I'm meant to be there. So I'm going to make the best out of whatever it is. So I say that to say that I started off in medical school. It was purely, purely by accident, but that's a story for another day. But I had, um, I had majored in psychology as undergrad, and I had planned to go to grad school and get my PhD in psych. However, the opportunity arose for me to go to medical school in the same school I did my undergrad. So I sat on it, thought about it. I wasn't going to take the opportunity because I'm an idiot, really at heart. <laughs> but, you know, two days later, I was like, you're an idiot. You need to take it. So I did. I took the opportunity. I had to, you know, I was behind the eight ball, obviously, because it was a special program called post-baccalaureate program where they, um, you know, you have to take all your prerequisites if you haven't taken them prior. So I did all that. Fine. Get to medical school. And um, once I got to medical school, then the next problem was going to be, okay, what am I going to do? What am I going to specialize in? I assumed I was going to specialize in psychiatry if I'm a psychology major and actually goes, you know, goes with the territory. Well, yeah. So I set up all of my rotations to reflect that. So I did the rotations I thought I was going to hate first. So I started off with surgery. Go figure. Anyway, um, by the time I got to my psych rotation, the people who were with me or one of my friends who knew she wanted to be a surgeon, she, um, you know, she watched me throughout the year. So I still like I, I hadn't really made up my mind. I, it was assumed I was going to do psych because I felt that I needed to do psych. However, um, I wanted to combine it with all these other things. Like I wanted to to make my own specialty of like psych and and surgery or psych and and gastroenterology or psych and a colorectal surgeon. Like I wanted to make it work for me. And of course, you know that would have meant that I would have been training forever. Anyway, long story short, when you're about to do your fourth year of medical school, right, you have to declare whatever your specialty you want to go into because you have to go and do certain rotations and get letters of recommendation so that you can get a residency. Fine. The night before, I was still like, oh, I'm thinking I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm gonna combine this. And finally, my friend is like, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night. Um, you have to decide by tomorrow. We have to go to school 8 a.m., right? And I said, don't worry. I'll know by tomorrow. She goes, how are you going to know by tomorrow? I'm with you the whole year. You still haven't made up your mind. <laughs> so she goes, may I just say something to you? I was like, of course. So she goes, you know, I've been with you all year. And I got to tell you that I've never seen you happier than when you did surgery. You did the psych rotation and you weren't, you weren't glowing. You weren't like passionate. And I said, really? So I, I said, so don't worry. By tomorrow morning, I'll have this down. She's like, okay. So I go back to my apartment. The school gives you a pamphlet, which tells you like a little snippet about every single specialty. I went ahead. I read it. Boom, boom, boom. I go to sleep. Again, I'm never stressed about these things. I go to sleep. I usually wake up around five o'clock in the morning. I don't dream at all, but I woke up delivering a baby in my dream. And I said, oh, well, I guess I'm doing OB. That was nowhere on the radar at (laughs) all. So I get to school and everyone's waiting. All my friends are waiting because they're like, oh my God, Monica has to make up her mind. And I walked in, they said, so? And I said, it's going to be OB. They were like, where the hell did that come from? I was like, <laughs> came to me in a dream. 
And then the rest is history. I did everything, to, you know, what I, I had to rush and do everything to get to get a rotation or whatever. And I never looked back. And I and I'm so glad that that the opportunity came to me, however it came to me, because I probably would not have been as happy because yeah. I, really, I really love my specialty. I love it. I love taking care of women, you know, the whole aspect, top to bottom. I am, you know, the confidant, I'm the friend, I'm, you know, the, the warlord, as some of them call me, <laughs> you know, I'm everything, but I enjoy it because I enjoy edu- educating women. I think that's very inspirational. Me too. I mean, I think because it's in part like real, like so many people (laughs) in college don't know what they're doing. We, I don't, I know I was that way and I switched degrees. And so I think that that's inspirational for that. Like people who are like, I don't know what I want to do. Oh, oh shit. (laughs) Um, But also. It's really relatable. Also, you must use like the psychology. I would think no matter what, if you major in psych, you sort of bring that forth with you to everything that you do thereafter in some sort of you know intuitive way yeah especially in this field yeah because I think that a lot of patients must must be very nervous sitting in your chair you think (laughs) yeah all day day, every day yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it's okay that's that's the part of it that I think um really meshes Mm -hmm. because I I, yeah I I can totally understand how they feel Mm -hmm. um you know I do get kickback from people who you know there's just some people you're never going to please because within a 15 20 minute encounter and especially if they don't know my style you know they 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 take my as my as my staff they take your realness to be sometimes a little bit aloof and I'm like this is not going to kill you if you just sit with me and let me do what I have to do for (laughs) however long I promise you you'll be okay and these things make you stronger. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's kind of a tough love type of thing, but but I'm always, if anything, very honest with my patients. And I think that that, and that interaction and that, you know, my psych background kind of gives me that empathy a lot, mm-hmm. but it's also it makes me very sympathetic because I am a female and I understand like everything that a lot of the things that women go through, I have gone through and I'm going through as well. And I'm very mm-hmm. honest about it because that's the only way that you really learn something is when you go through it, you know, like 150% of whatever it is you just went through, right? Mm-hmm. Because you've experienced it. Whereas if I was a male, no offense to men, and I'm reading in a book that a woman is supposed to feel this or do that, it, yeah. doesn't, it doesn't necessarily come off the same way, you know? So I knew that me taking care of men probably won't be the best because men usually don't even want to go to the doctor anyway. Um, <laughs> but they're even more so not going to come to a female. Um, but it wasn't even on the table. Like I just, again, the OB stuff, it just, it just, it just came to me. And I guess that that was the path I was supposed to take. And I'm not going to say that I, I feel I'm good at it because I always, you know, strive every day to try and um, educate myself so that I can pass on whatever information to others. But it makes me happy. It, it makes me happy to um, to take care of women and, and be be part of their life goals and things. So yeah, yeah. Sure. And you get to see you get to see women at some of the most important stages of their lives. It's true. It's yeah, true. yeah. And just from talking to you in the last hour, I aloof is not a word I would use at all to describe you like you you've got you've got this really warm delivery and you you make things so easy to understand I don't know about that but thank you thank you I had no I told you I had no choice that's how I I go through life if I don't have a choice 
then, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you make your mess, you got to mm-hmm. clean it up. And when you clean it up, that's when you learn why the mess was made in the first place. And then you move on. Mm-hmm. And that's how my life has always been. And so, yeah, so I always feel bad. Like my medical students ask me all the time. And I always go, oh, my God. You're not gonna... <laughs> but, and then when I tell them, they're like, oh, my God, because I don't know. And I'm like, well, if I could be an inspiration to someone who is clueless, great. But I think, yeah. you know, most people have an idea. And even if you have an idea, so the moral of my story is, is that I just fly by the seat of my pants, which a lot of people view as that I'm very confident and I'm mm-hmm. not, I mean, I'm confident now, obviously, because I picked up a lot of messes of myself. Right. Um, but my model has always been, if you do not believe in yourself, who will? Yeah. So you have to be the person in your mind, pushing yourself to be better to try more to learn more and if that doesn't happen then who's gonna because your parents can't do it Mm -hmm. nobody outside can do it but you because you know what you're thinking in the back recesses of your mind you know if you're afraid of something the only person who can get you through that is you yeah and I learned that very early on and so since then yeah so that's why that confidence or that aloofness like I said comes out because people think that I don't take things seriously I take it very seriously Mm -hmm. it's just I know that okay the power in me is going to be I'm going to do the best I can and if my best is not good enough then it was not meant to happen that way I was meant to learn whatever lessons that's that's a great lesson that's a great lesson um So Dr. Simmons, I really appreciate you giving us your time today. We end every interview with a few rapid fire questions. Okay. So (laughs) I've seen this on television. So tell me. You'll love it. (laughs) What word do you use most often for breasts? Breasts. What's your least favorite word for breasts? Boobs. (laughs) Do you remember your first bra? Yeah, it was a sports (laughs) bra. It was hot pink and white. It was a training bra my mom bought me. It was at, you guys are way too young, but there was a store <laughs> called Corvettes back in the day. And she bought it at Corvettes. I had a, a, a pink, hot pink and white and a plain white. What type of bra, if any, do you prefer and why? I love sports bras. One, because there's versatility. I have told you the whole podcast that I have small breasts or boobs, which I hate the word, but I use it because people love it. Um, So I like that you have, you know, you have choices with the sports bra. You can get the ones with the padding and it pushes up your your breast so that it makes you look like you have cleavage when you're in the gym, or you can get the ones which are unpadded and you can do yoga and it's fine. So it just depends on you, but that's my favorite. It's a sports bra. What is your favorite thing or something interesting about your breasts? Um, I guess the most interesting is I have one inverted nipple and I have one regular nipple. Um, what do you think is the hardest part of having breasts? <laughs> All right. Well, if I had a larger size breast, I think, you know, when I used to run, that would have been difficult. You know, working out can be difficult because it, it really is, it really can be heavy. Um, Unfortunately, I never had that issue. And I, I thought to myself when I was younger and looked at all these other people who had bigger breasts, I was like, well, I guess that'll be the positive for me that, you know what, they won't droop, one. Number two, you know, if I run, I don't have all that extra weight. So it's a, it's a dichotomy. So it depends on the person. But for me, I can do anything I want. I can go braless. 
I can run through the street naked and, you know, <laughs> they won't go flying to my knees. That's the greatest part about it. <laughs> and last but not least, what do you wish those without breasts knew about breasts? You mean um, the male species? Is that what yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Anyone who's never had breasts their whole life. Okay. So, uh, see, that's kind of a trick question because because I give the same speech to men because they have breast tissue. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I wish, or I think that by now, most men who are within the age of fatherhood or our fathers have learned that breasts are not necessarily um, a sex symbol, that they are functional. They were made to lactate. <laughs> so <laughs> when they get jealous or have you know these, these feelings of alienation, when you see a child on the woman who you love or the mother of your child um, is breastfeeding and you know they feel a little away as they say, um, they have to understand that it's that it was not meant just for their pleasure. It's meant for, you know, to do a job. So that's, yeah. that's what that's the only thing I really wish that they would understand. That's a that's a really good note to end on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, thank you so so much for doing this, Dr. Simmons. I was so excited to talk to you today. <laughs> oh, anytime, anytime. I'll do anything for you. I like yeah. you. I like you too. You're you're cool. Take <laughs> it easy. Honey. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> the Very Breast podcast ever was written, produced, and recorded by Nadia Figueroa and Alyssa McHugh. Cover art by Alyssa McHugh. Opening music by Margaret Tran. Check her out on Spotify. For episode transcripts and sources, please visit our website at theverybreastpodcastever.com. Do you have questions? Corrections? Do you want to tell us your breast story? Get in touch with us on Instagram at theverybreastpod or email us at theverybreastpodcastever at gmail.com. If you like our podcast, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe, share with your breasties, and consider donating to our Patreon. Thanks for listening. Now go out and make today the breast day ever. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.